Hello again, I'm Richard Figge, and this is for Reading Out Loud, so good to have you with me again. Guy de Maupassant was a brilliant and prolific French writer whose career spanned the late 19th century. He wrote six novels, three travel books, a book of poetry, and over 300 short stories. His writing was often deeply pessimistic, and he could be a savagely brilliant satirist. Tonight's stories are in a lighter vein, as he takes an amused if cynical look at the vanities of his characters. He doesn't preach a moral, he lets the actions speak for themselves, and he does it all with the economy and neat plotting of a master storyteller. The Jewels by Guy de Maupassant Monsieur Lontin had met the young girl at a reception at the house of the second head of his department and had fallen head over heels in love with her. She was the daughter of a provincial tax collector who had been dead several years. She and her mother came to live in Paris, where the latter, who made the acquaintance of some of the families in the neighborhood, hoped to find a husband for her daughter. They had very modest means and were honorable, gentle, and quiet. The young girl was a perfect type of the virtuous woman in whose hands every sensible young man dreamed of one day entrusting his happiness. Her simple beauty had the charm of angelic modesty and the imperceptible smile which constantly hovered about her lips seemed to be the reflection of a pure and lovely soul. Her praises resounded on every side. People never tired of repeating, Happy the man who wins her love, he could not find a better wife. Monsieur Lantin, then chief clerk in the Department of the Interior, enjoyed a snug little salary of three thousand five hundred francs, and he proposed to the model young girl, and was accepted. He was unspeakably happy with her. She governed his household with such clever economy that they seemed to live in luxury. She lavished the most delicate attentions on her husband, coaxed and fondled him, and so great was her charm that six years after their marriage Monsieur Lontin discovered that he loved his wife even more than during the days of their honeymoon. He found fault with only two of her tastes, her love for the theatre and her taste for imitation jewelry. Her friends, the wives of some petty officials, frequently procured for her a box at the theatre, often for the first representations of the new plays. Her husband was obliged to accompany her, whether he wished it or not, to these entertainments which bored him excessively after his day's work at the office. After a time M. Lantin begged his wife to request some lady of her acquaintance to accompany her and to bring her home after the theatre. She opposed this arrangement at first, but, after much persuasion, finally consented to the infinite delight of her husband. Now, with her love for the theatre came also the desire for ornaments. Her costumes remained as before, simple, in good taste, and always modest. But she soon began to adorn her ears with huge rhinestones which glittered and sparkled like real diamonds. Around her neck she wore strings of false pearls, on her arms bracelets of imitation gold, and combs set with glass jewels. Her husband frequently remonstrated with her, saying, "'My dear, as you cannot afford to buy real jewelry, 
you ought to appear adorned with your beauty and modesty alone, which are the rarest ornaments of your sex. But she would smile sweetly and say, What can I do? I am so fond of jewelry. It is my only weakness. We cannot change our nature. Then she would wind the pearl necklace around her fingers, make the facets of the crystal gems sparkle, and say, Look, are they not lovely? One would swear they were real. Monsieur Lontin would then answer, smilingly, You have bohemian tastes, my dear. Sometimes of an evening, when they were enjoying a -a tete-a-tete by the fireside, she would place on the tea-table the Morocco leather-box containing the trash, as Monsieur Lontin called it. She would examine the false gems with a passionate attention, as though they imparted some deep and secret joy, and she often persisted in passing a necklace round her husband's neck, and laughing heartily would exclaim, "'How droll you look!' Then she would throw herself into his arms and kiss him affectionately." One evening in winter she had been to the opera, and returned home chilled through and through. The next morning she coughed, and eight days later she died of pneumonia. Monsieur Lontin's despair was so great that his hair became white in one month. He wept unceasingly. His heart was broken as he remembered her smile, her voice, every charm of his dead wife. Time did not assuage his grief. Often, during office hours, while his colleagues were discussing the topics of the day, his eyes would suddenly fill with tears, and he would give vent to his grief in heart-rending sobs. Everything in his wife's room remained as it was during her lifetime, all her furniture, even her clothing, being left as it was on the day of her death. Here he was wont to seclude himself daily, and think of her who had been his treasure, the joy of his existence. His life soon became a struggle. His income, which in the hands of his wife covered all household expenses, was no longer sufficient for his own immediate wants, and he wondered how she could have managed to buy such excellent wine and the rare delicacies which he could no longer procure with his modest resources. He incurred some debts, and was soon reduced to absolute poverty. One morning, finding himself without a cent in his pocket, he resolved to sell something, and immediately the thought occurred to him of disposing of his wife's paste jewels, for he cherished in his heart a sort of rancor against these deceptions which had always irritated him in the past. The very sight of them spoiled somewhat the memory of his lost darling." To the last days of her life she had continued to make purchases, bringing home new gems almost every evening, and he turned them over some time before finally deciding to sell the heavy necklace which she seemed to prefer, and which, he thought, ought to be worth about six or seven francs, for it was a very fine workmanship, though only imitation. He put it in his pocket, and started out in search of what seemed a reliable jeweler's shop. At length he found one, and went in, feeling a little ashamed to expose his misery, and also to offer such a worthless article for sale. "'Sir,' he said to the merchant, "'I would like to know what this is worth.' The man took the necklace, examined it, called his clerk, and made some remarks in an undertone. 
He put the ornament back on the counter and looked at it from a distance to judge of the effect. Monsieur Lantin, annoyed at all these ceremonies, was on the point of saying, "'Oh, I know well enough it is not worth anything,' when the jeweler said, "'Sir, that necklace is worth from twelve to fifteen thousand francs, but I could not buy it unless you tell me exactly where it came from.' The widower opened his eyes wide and remained gaping, not comprehending the merchant's meaning. Finally he stammered, "'You say—' "'Are you sure?' The other replied dryly, "'You can try elsewhere and see if anyone will offer you more. I consider it worth fifteen thousand at the most. Come back here if you cannot do better.' Monsieur Lantin, beside himself with astonishment, took up the necklace and left the store. He wished time for reflection. Once outside, he felt inclined to laugh, and said to himself, The fool! Oh, the fool! Had I only taken him at his word! That jeweler cannot distinguish real diamonds from the imitation article. A few minutes later he entered another store in the Rue de la Paix. As soon as the proprietor glanced at the necklace, he cried out, Oh, parbleu! I know it well. It was bought here. Monsieur Lantin, greatly disturbed, asked, How much is it worth? "'Well, I sold it for twenty thousand francs. I'm willing to take it back for eighteen thousand when you inform me, according to our legal formality, how it came to be in your possession.' This time M. Lontin was dumbfounded. He replied, "'But examine it well. Until this moment I was under the impression that it was imitation.' The jeweler asked, "'What is your name, sir?' Lantin. I am in the employ of the Minister of the Interior. I live at number 16 Rue des Martyrs. The merchant looked through his books, found the entry, and said, That necklace was sent to Madame Lantin's address, 16 Rue des Martyrs, July 20th, 1876. The two men looked into each other's eyes, the widower speechless with astonishment, the jeweler scenting a thief. The latter broke the silence. "'Will you leave this necklace here for twenty-four hours?' he said. "'I will give you a receipt.' Monsieur Lantin answered hastily, "'Yes, certainly.' Then, putting the ticket in his pocket, he left the store. He wandered aimlessly through the streets, his mind in a state of dreadful confusion. He tried to reason, to understand. His wife could not afford to purchase such a costly ornament.' certainly not. But then it must have been a present. A present? A present from whom? Why was it given her? He stopped and remained standing in the middle of the street. A horrible doubt entered his mind. She? Then all the other jewels must have been presents, too. The earth seemed to tremble beneath him, the tree before him to be falling, he threw up his arms and fell to the ground unconscious. He recovered his senses in a pharmacy into which the passers-by had borne him. He asked to be taken home, and when he reached his house he shut himself up in his room and wept until nightfall. Finally, overcome with fatigue, he went to bed and fell into a heavy sleep.
The sun awoke him next morning, and he began to dress slowly to go to the office. It was hard to work after such shocks. He sent a letter to his employer requesting to be excused. Then he remembered he had to return to the jeweler's. He did not like the idea, but he could not leave the necklace with that man. He dressed and went out. It was a lovely day. A clear blue sky smiled on the busy city below. Men of leisure were strolling about with their hands in their pockets. Monsieur Lantin, observing them, said to himself, The rich indeed are happy. With money it is possible to forget even the deepest sorrow. One can go where one pleases, and in travel find that distraction which is the surest cure for grief. Oh, if I were only rich! He perceived that he was hungry, but his pocket was empty. He again remembered the necklace. Eighteen thousand francs! Eighteen thousand francs! What a sum! He soon arrived in the Rue de la Paix opposite the jeweler's. Eighteen thousand francs! Twenty times he resolved to go in, but shame kept him back. He was hungry, however, very hungry, and not a cent in his pocket. He decided quickly, ran across the street in order not to have time for reflection, and rushed into the store. The proprietor immediately came forward and politely offered him a chair. The clerks glanced at him knowingly. "'I have made inquiries, Monsieur Lantin,' said the jeweler, "'and if you are still resolved to dispose of the gems, I am ready to pay you the price I offered.' "'Certainly, sir,' stammered Monsieur Lantin. Whereupon the proprietor took from a drawer eighteen large bills, counted, and handed them to Monsieur Lantin, who signed a receipt, and with trembling hand put the money into his pocket. As he was about to leave the store, he turned toward the merchant, who still wore the same knowing smile, and lowering his eyes said, "'I have—I have other gems which came from the same source. Will you buy them also?' The merchant bowed. "'Certainly, sir.' Monsieur Lantin said gravely, "'I will bring them to you.' An hour later he returned with the gems. The large diamond earrings were worth twenty thousand francs, the bracelets thirty-five thousand, the rings sixteen thousand, a set of emeralds and sapphires fourteen thousand, a gold chain with solitaire pendant forty thousand, making the sum of one hundred and forty-three thousand francs. The jeweler remarked jokingly, "'There was a person who invested all her savings in precious stones.' Monsieur Lantin replied seriously, "'It is only another way of investing one's money.' That day he lunched at Voisin's and drank wine worth twenty francs a bottle. Then he hired a carriage and made a tour of the bois. He gazed at the other carriages with a kind of disdain, and could hardly refrain from crying out to the occupants, "'I too am rich. I am worth two hundred thousand francs.' Suddenly he thought of his employer. He drove up to the bureau, and entered gaily, saying, "'Sir, I have come to resign my position. I have just inherited three hundred thousand francs.' He shook hands with his former colleagues, 
and confided to them some of his projects for the future. He then went off to dine at the Café Anglais. He seated himself beside a gentleman of aristocratic bearing, and during the meal informed the latter, confidentially, that he had just inherited a fortune of four hundred thousand francs. For the first time in his life he was not bored at the theatre, and he spent the remainder of the night in a gay frolic. Six months afterward he married again. His second wife was a very virtuous woman, but had a violent temper. She made him very unhappy. Théodule Sabot's Confession When Sabot entered the inn at Martinville, it was a signal for laughter. What a rogue he was, this Sabot! There was a man who did not like priests, for instance. Oh, no, oh, no, he did not spare them, the scamp. Sabot, Théodule, a master carpenter, represented liberal thought in Martinville, he was a tall, thin man with gray, cunning eyes and thin lips, and wore his hair plastered down on his temples. When he said, Our Holy Father, the Pope, in a certain manner, everyone laughed. He made a point of working on Sunday during the hour of Mass. He killed his pig each year on Monday in Holy Week in order to have enough black pudding to last till Easter, and when the priest passed by, he always said, by way of a joke, "'There goes one who has just swallowed his god off a salver.' The priest, a stout man and also very tall, dreaded him on account of his boastful talk which attracted followers. The Abbe Maritime was a politic man and believed in being diplomatic. There had been a rivalry between them for ten years, a secret, intense, incessant rivalry— Sabot was a municipal councillor, and they thought he would become mayor, which would inevitably mean the final overthrow of the church. The elections were about to take place. The church party was shaking in its boots in Martinville. One morning the curé set out for Rouen, telling his servant that he was going to see the archbishop. He returned in two days with a joyous, triumphant air, and everyone knew the following day that the choir of the church was going to be renovated. A sum of six hundred francs had been contributed by the archbishop out of his private fund. All the old pine pews were to be removed and replaced by new pews made of oak. It would be a big carpentering job, and they talked about it that very evening in all the houses of the village. Théodule Sabot was not laughing. When he went through the village the following morning, the neighbors, friends, and enemies all asked him jokingly, Are you going to do the work on the choir of the church? He could find nothing to say, but he was furious, he was good and angry. Ill-natured people added, It is a good piece of work, and will bring in not less than two or three percent profit. Two days later they heard that the work of the restoration had been entrusted to Celestin Chambrelon, the carpenter from Percheville. Then this was denied, and it was said that all the pews in the church were going to be changed. That would be well worth the two thousand francs that had been demanded of the church administration. Théodule Sabot could not sleep for thinking about it. 
Never in all the memory of man had a country carpenter undertaken a similar piece of work. Then a rumor spread about that the curé felt very grieved that he had to give this work to a carpenter who was a stranger in the community, but that Sabot's opinions were a barrier to his being entrusted with the job. Sabot knew it well. He called at the parsonage just as it was growing dark. The servant told him that the curé was at church. He went to the church. Two attendants on the altar of the Virgin, two sour old maids, were decorating the altar for the month of Mary, under the direction of the priest, who stood in the middle of the chancel with his portly paunch, directing the two women who, mounted on chairs, were placing flowers around the tabernacle. Sabot felt ill at ease in there, as though he were in the house of his greatest enemy, but the greed of gain was gnawing at his heart. He drew nearer, holding his cap in his hand, and not paying any attention to the Demoiselle de la Vierge, who remained standing, startled, astonished, motionless on their chairs. He faltered, "'Good morning, Monsieur le Curé.' The priest replied without looking at him, all occupied as he was with the altar, "'Good morning, Mr. Carpenter.' Sabot, nonplussed, knew not what to say next, but after a pause he remarked, "'You are making preparations?' Abbe Maritime replied, "'Yes, we are near the month of Mary.' "'Why—why—' remarked Sabot, and then was silent. He would have liked to retire now without saying anything, but a glance at the choir held him back. He saw sixteen seats that had to be remade, six to the right and eight to the left, the door of the sacristy occupying the place of two. Sixteen oak seats that would be worth at most three hundred francs, and by figuring carefully one might certainly make two hundred francs on the work if one were not clumsy. Then he stammered out, I have come about the work. The curé appeared surprised. He asked, What work? The work to be done, murmured Sabot in dismay. Then the priest turned around, and looking him straight in the eyes, said, Do you mean the repairs in the choir of my church? At the tone of the abbé, Théodule Sabot felt a chill run down his back, and he once more had a longing to take to his heels. However, he replied humbly, "'Why, yes, Monsieur le Curé.' Then the abbé folded his arms across his large stomach, and, as if filled with amazement, said, "'Is it you—you—you, you, Sabot, who have come to ask me for this? You, the only irreligious man in my parish? Why, it would be a scandal—' a public scandal. The archbishop would give me a reprimand, perhaps transfer me. He stopped a few seconds for breath, then resumed in a calmer tone, I can understand that it pains you to see a work of such importance entrusted to a carpenter from a neighboring parish, but I cannot do otherwise unless—but no, it is impossible. You would not consent, and unless you did, never— Sabot now looked at the row of benches in line as far as the entrance door. Christopher! If they were going to change all those! And he asked, What would you require of me? Tell me. 
The priest, in a firm tone, replied, I must have an extraordinary token of your good intentions. I do not say—I do not say—perhaps we might come to an understanding, faltered Sabot. You will have to take communion publicly at High Mass next Sunday, declared the curé. The carpenter felt he was growing pale, and without replying he asked, And the benches, are they going to be renovated? The abbe replied with confidence, Yes, but later on. Sabot resumed, I do not say, I do not say, I am not calling it off, I am consenting to religion, for sure, but what rubs me the wrong way is putting it into practice, but in this case I will not be refractory. The attendants of the Virgin, having got off their chairs, had concealed themselves behind the altar, and they listened, pale with emotion. The curé, seeing he had gained the victory, became all at once very friendly, quite familiar. "'That is good. That is good. That was wisely said, and not stupid, you understand. You will see. You will see.' Sabot smiled, and asked with an awkward air, "'Would it not be possible to put off this communion just a trifle?' But the priest replied, resuming his severe expression, "'From the moment that the work is put into your hands, I want to be assured of your conversion.' Then he continued more gently, "'You will come to confession to-morrow, for I must examine you at least twice.' "'Twice?' repeated Sabot. "'Yes.' The priest smiled. "'You understand perfectly that you must have a general cleaning up, a thorough cleansing, so I will expect you to-morrow.' The carpenter, much agitated, asked, "'Where do you do that?' "'Why, in the confessional.' "'In that box over there in the corner? The fact is, is that it does not suit me, your box.' "'How is that?' "'Seeing that I am not accustomed to that, and also I, I am rather hard of hearing.' The curé was very affable, and said, well, then, you shall come to my house and into my parlor. We will have it just the two of us, tete-a-tete. -tete. Does that suit you? Yes, that is all right. That will suit me. But your box, no. Well, then, to-morrow, after the day's work, at six o'clock. That is understood. That is all right. That is agreed on. To-morrow, monsieur le curé, whoever draws back is a skunk." and he held out his great rough hand, which the priest grasped heartily with a clap that resounded through the church. Théodule Sabot was not easy in his mind all the following day. He had a feeling analogous to the apprehension one experiences when a tooth has to be drawn. The thought recurred to him at every moment, I must go to confession this evening, and his troubled mind the mind of an atheist only half convinced, was bewildered with a confused and overwhelming dread of the divine mystery. As soon as he had finished his work, he betook himself to the parsonage. The curé was waiting for him in the garden, reading his breviary as he walked along a little path. He appeared radiant, and greeted him with a good-natured laugh. "'Well, here we are. 
Come in, come in, Monsieur Sabot. No one will eat you. And Sabot preceded him into the house. He faltered, If you do not mind, I should like to get through this little matter at once. The curé replied, I am at your service. I have my surplice here. One minute, and I will listen to you. The carpenter, so disturbed that he had not two ideas in his head, watched him as he put on the white vestment with its pleated folds. The priest beckoned to him and said, Kneel down on this cushion. Sabot remained standing, ashamed of having to kneel. He stuttered, Is it necessary? But the abbe had become dignified. You cannot approach the penitent bench except on your knees. And Sabot knelt down. "'Repeat the confitior,' said the priest. "'What is that?' asked Sabot. "'The confitior. If you do not remember it, repeat after me, one by one, the words I am going to say.' And the curé repeated the sacred prayer in a slow tone, emphasizing the words which the carpenter repeated after him. Then he said, "'Now, make your confession.' But Sabot was silent not knowing where to begin. The abbe then came to his aid. "'My child, I will ask you questions, since you don't seem familiar with these things. We will take, one by one, the commandments of God. Listen to me, and do not be disturbed. Speak very frankly, and never fear that you may say too much. Thou shalt worship one God alone, and love Him with all thy heart.' Have you ever loved anything or anybody as well as you loved God? Have you loved Him with all your soul, all your heart, all the strength of your love? Sabo was perspiring with the effort of thinking. He replied, No, oh no, Monsieur le Curé, I, I love God as much as I can. That is, yes, I, I love Him very much. To say that I do not love my children, no, I, I cannot say that. To say that if I had to choose between them and God, I could not be sure. To say that if I had to lose a hundred francs for the love of God, I could not say about that. But I love him well, for sure. I love him all the same. The priest said gravely, You must love him more than all besides. And Sabot, meaning well, declared, I will do what I possibly can, Monsieur le Curé. The abbe resumed, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord in vain, nor swear by any other. Have you ever sworn any oaths? No, oh, that, no, I never swear, never. Sometimes in a moment of anger I may say, Sacre nom de Dieu, but then I, I never swear. That is swearing, cried the priest, and added seriously, Do not do it again. I'll continue. Thou shalt keep the Sabbath holy, and serve God devoutly. What do you do on Sunday? This time Sabot scratched his ear. Why, I serve God as best I can, Monsieur le Curé. I serve Him at home. I work on Sunday. The Curé interrupted him, saying magnanimously, I know you will do better in future. I will pass over the following commandments, certain that you have not transgressed the two first. We will take from the sixth to the ninth. I will resume. 
Thou shalt not take another's goods, nor keep them wittingly. Have you ever taken in any way what belonged to another? But Théodule Sabot became indignant. Of course not. Of course not. I am an honest man, Monsieur le Curé. I swear it for sure. To say that I have not sometimes charged for a few hours of work to customers who had means, oh, I could not say that. To say that I never add a few centimes to bills, only a few, I would not say that. But to steal, no. Oh, no, not that, no. The priest resumed severely. To take one single centime constitutes a theft. Do not do it again. Thou shalt not bear false witness, nor lie in any way. Have you ever told a lie? No, as to that, no, I am not a liar. That is my quality. To say that I have never told a big story, I would not like to say that. To say that I have never made people believe things that were not true when it was to my own interest, I would not like to say that. But as for lying, I am not a liar. The priest simply said, Watch yourself more closely. Then he continued, Thou shalt not lust after the works of the flesh, save only in marriage. Did you ever desire or live with any other woman than your wife? Sabo exclaimed with sincerity, As to that, no! Oh, as to that, no, Monsieur le Curé! My poor wife, deceive her! No, no! Not so much as the tip of a finger, either in thought or in act. That is the truth. They were silent a few seconds. Then, in a lower tone, as though a doubt had arisen in his mind, he resumed, When I go to town, to say that I never go into a house, you know, one of the licensed houses, just to laugh and talk and see something different, I could not say that. But I always pay, Monsieur le Curé, I always pay. From the moment you pay, without anyone seeing or knowing you, no one can get you into trouble. The Curé did not insist, and gave him absolution. Théodule Sabot did the work on the chancel, and goes to communion every month. You've been listening to The Jewels and Théodule Sabot's Confession by Guy de Maupassant. I'm Richard Figge, and this has been for Reading Out Loud. That's it for tonight. I hope you'll join me again next week. In the meantime, be well, be happy, stay safe, all the best.